The Indian Relay Podcast is made possible by the Institute of Tribal Learning at Central Wyoming College. The Institute coordinates American Indian services through continued education on historical and contemporary issues. CWC proudly serves the two nations of the Wind River Reservation, and through the Institute, they seek to provide positive influences to educate students, along with tribal and non-tribal community members on American Indian issues on a local and national scale. To support the Institute and its mission, or to learn more more, email Ivan Posey, iposey at cwc.edu. That's I-P-O-S-E-Y at cwc.edu. This is Cody Beers with the Wyoming Department of Transportation. YDAT is proud to help bring you the Indian Relay podcast and to partner with the Eastern Shoshone and Northern Arapaho tribes. Our goal is to keep people safe on our local highways. Did you know that Wyoming has averaged 1,100 alcohol-involved crashes annually in each of the last 10 years, and that more than 50 people die every year as a result of drunk driving? We can do better. We must. Celebrate life. Drive sober. I stand before you guys as a full-blooded Native American woman, but the statistic that hangs over my head is that I am the most stalked, raped, murdered, sexually assaulted, and I suffer domestic violence 50 times higher than the national average. And every time I say that, that kills me. Here on the Wind River Indian Reservation, we have stories to tell, history to share, and wisdom to give. On this show, we share the well-roundedness of our people. In that process, we break the mold placed on us and reclaim our identity. Northern Arapaho and Eastern Shoshone. We are two nations and one community. This is Indian Relay, a Wind River Indian Reservation podcast. Haba, Bisihi Nit Ena, Jaha Ena Na Asi Ena, Na Hinna Ena. Hello, all my relatives. My name is Jakahe Black, and I belong to the Northern Arapaho tribe. I want to say thank you to each and every single one of you for tuning in to another episode of Indian Relay. We appreciate all of our listeners and all of our supporters. You can go find us on Facebook and Instagram where you can see more content and previous show links. You can also find our show links on IndianRelay.com. And from there, you can find our episodes on whatever podcast platform you use. And I ask that you would rate and review all of our shows that you listen to. When you do that, we are able to reach reach a broader audience and more people will hear the stories that we're putting out on Indian Relay. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and if you go to the 10Cast Studio website, you can also find us on there. Today we have a two-part episode. In the first half, we're going to be speaking with Lynette Graybull, and then later in the second half of the episode, we will be speaking with Latera Latera LeBeau. And with Lynette, we will be speaking on her journey that has led her up to currently to be currently running for a seat in the U.S. Congress. Uh, we'll also talk about some of the anti-trafficking efforts and some of the advocacy work that she has been involved in. And then in the second half of the episode, we will be speaking with Latera LeBeau on missing, murdered, and indigenous women and that movement and the facts and the statistics surrounding all of that. So our first guest is Lynette Grable. 
and Lynette belongs to the Northern Arapaho and the Hunkpapa Lakota Nation. She is the Vice President for the Global Indigenous Council. She is an independent consultant and trainer for providing technical assistant training on sex trafficking and sex trafficking awareness. She was previously the program consultant for the Department of Justice Amber Alert Program. She is the director and founder of Not Our Native Daughters, which is a nonprofit geared towards the MMIW movement. She holds a certificate of completion in the Medical Billing Specialist Program from Mount San Antonio College. She also holds a certificate of completion of business and office management from the Pasadena City College. She also has a certificate from the Fox Valley Technical College and the Arizona Trauma Institute. She has a certificate of completion of the Organized for Action Community Organizer Fellows Program. She is a board member for the Wyoming Murdered, Missing, and Indigenous Person Task Force, and she is also a task force member for the Wyoming Human Trafficking Task Force. And she is currently a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Congress. Ah, this is Ivan Posey. I'm joining Jocahe today to do the episode with uh, Lynette and Terry today, and I'm looking forward to uh, listening to you ladies spread some good news for us in Indian country and all those uh, non-natives that want to learn um, about more about our uh, people here on the Wind River, the Shoshone and Arapaho. So welcome, Lynette. Terry. Thus, well, thank you, ha-ho, for the great introduction. I am honored to be with you guys here today. Um, as you know, I am running for a U.S. House of Representatives. Um, I am a Northern Arapaho tribal member here at the Wind River Reservation. Um, and as stated, I'm also Hunk Papa Lakota from the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. Um, it's, you know, anybody who runs for any office as a Native American, of course, can see that it's an uphill battle. We've only seen a few Native American um, candidates run for office, you know, in the past three to four years. Um, and so it's imperative that uh, people understand my passion, my past journey, what led me to this point, um, and what am I passionate about. I think there's a lot of um, things out there with the debates and the interviews that display my campaign policy, the things I, I've advocated for, bills I've been participated in both on a state and federal level in the past. But I would like to take this opportunity to kind of share more of who I am personally, um, you know, my passion, my life purpose. You know, I do believe that all of us have gifts and purpose in our lives. And I, I feel like I, this is one step of fulfilling that purpose on this journey. So from a spiritual, um, cultural um, aspect, I hope to deliver these types of, of, of values that I have inside of me. So I, I'm honored to be here today. Thank you so much. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. <clears throat> now, to begin, I want to take it way back. Um, so you were born in Los Angeles, California, and have been residing in Wyoming since 2017. And I believe that no matter where you come from or what you grew up around, if you're Native, you are Native. Um, and one thing or another doesn't make you more Native than someone else. Um, so when you were growing up in California from a young age, how did you navigate your Native identity and knowing that you were Native, how was that? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, actually, um, my family up, up in Standing Rock, my grandparents um, were actually uh, powwow directors um, in the powwow circuit. My entire family, we, we were all powwow dancers. Um, so even from California, we would hit the powwow circuit every summer. So every summer, ever since I could remember, I was I was in the plains. I was either here in, in Wyoming. Um, I think from one to 12 years old, those are the years I was a fancy dancer. Um, I was always at ETT celebration. Um, I was always, you know, a United Tribes up in up in North Dakota, um, even traveled to Browning and other places for powwows, Fort Peck. And, you know, we hit the powwow trail. So my summers were out of the city. My summers were at home on the reservation. Um, I've always felt like home ever since I was a child when I would come visit the res and my family. Um, and it's, you know what, you're, you're exactly right. You know, I, I wake up indigenous every single day and whether I state it or pronounce it or not, whatever part of, of the community that I am, both in the urban or, or rural setting, um, I'm native when I walk in. People see that. People are aware of that. For us who have to live in um, here in Fremont County and the surrounding border towns of the reservation, um, we understand what blatant hostile racism looks like because we have already been identified as racism or a person of color. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I take the cultural aspect and identity um, very, it's always been drilled in me. I think it's been drilled in all of us growing up indigenous, uh, to be proud, um, to understand who we are, to understand our values. Our values and our, our culture is much different than the outside world. Mm -hmm. um, our values are not the same of even political in the political realm. You know, we have higher standards when it comes to um, honoring and dignity and family and, and supporting one another. Um, and those are the types of attributes and family uh, values that I would like to bring to the table in the political realm, actually. Mm. Yeah. And you've done a lot of advocacy work throughout your life. Um, did you find yourself doing advocacy work in school when you were in middle school or maybe high school and at, in, at such a young age? That's a great question. You know what? I, um, I actually always wanted to be a judge. Mm. <laughs> Nice, nice. I think there is a there was an aspect of justice that I've always been attracted to, even as a child. Um, you know, growing up, I had a lot more experience of diversity. I had a lot more experience of working and having friends, um, and I still do that are Latino, African American, Asian. You know, I, my my friends are all colors and come from all tribes across the world. Um, and so, you know, coming back to the rural settings, um, not just here but also in Arizona has really, I think, broadened my perspective, um, just spiritually and and intelligently, because you know the world doesn't look at us quite the same, um, or even we don't share the same successes as compared to like other ethnicities. Um, and one thing I always state when I present is I want to see Native, Native Americans succeed um, just like how other races have, have obtained success, whether it's in the political realm, whether it's actors, I mean, just the whole plethora of ambition that is out there that I feel like we're missing in representation. Um, and I, I definitely am part of that, obviously, running for office. But um, mm -hmm. I definitely would like to see more of that. Um, and so, yes, um, it's it's a... Um, a big taking on, on on representing indigenous because I feel like we're always put on the back shelf or on yes. the back burner. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
And you mentioned that from a young age you were interested in justice and you wanted to be a judge. And you've stated that you've been in public service since you were 25. Yeah, actually, um, I, um, you know, started to do volunteers and stuff. And when I was a child in middle school and high school, um, of course, I was in a, in a bigger public setting at, at that time. And but, you know, being boisterous and standing up for something was something that was normal to me as as a young adult. Um, so. When I was 25 years old, I was um, asked if I wanted to help a group of women, young women, they're my age, um, who wanted to go help um, serve a homeless community on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. Um, I did that for two years. Um, it actually overwhelmed me. This, I think that was a lot of root of my um, compassion. Um, but also, you know, just on a on a personal note, um, you know, I as a single mother has also been on the brink of homelessness myself, you know, putting myself through school, going through different avenues to better myself, you know, education wise, but also having to work a full time job, being a divorced mother of three um, has been challenging and it still is. I mean, that's that's still is a issue. I have a college student entering sophomore year and I, I have a high schooler entering freshman and I have a, a ninth, a, a fifth grade. Um, so, you know, these things are still challenging. And so this is why I do so much to help our people in our community. When I hear a need, if I'm aware of any type of need, I try to jump on it. If I can't help them, then I try to connect them to other people to, to, to help them. So uh, being a public servant and offering community well-being, either as a volunteer or just at education and empowering our people, is really something I live and breathe daily. Mm. And can you talk to us about the very first experience you've had where you realized that the rest of your life you wanted to do the advocacy work? You know, um, after I started to, and then I, and you know, just to piggyback what I already said, I used to work with United Way for four years. Um, there was a project homeless outreach that I was a, I was a lead volunteer and I used to train other volunteers to do it as well. Um, but after that, um, I, um, was asked to, uh, this is when I was living in Arizona, um, I was asked to help the women's unit um, at the federal um, CCA prison in Florence, Arizona. I'll tell you 50% of these women in, in that prison down there were native um, from all different tribes. Um, I think this is where I found the hugest need and um, being compelled to help other Native women because I was able to get a glimpse of all these women's uh, stories and their journey. And the common thread of their story was that they were either um, exploited as a child or exploited as a young woman. Um, they had suffered sexual assault at some degree, whether as a child, as an adult. Um, and I think that four years of work really just built up a fire in me to do something. You know, one of the things I always state when I present, especially when I get consulted to work, um, do trainings um, for Indian country, is that, you know, I am, I stand before you guys as, as a full-blooded Native American woman, but the statistic that hangs over my head is that I am the most stalked, raped, murdered, sexually assaulted, and I suffer domestic violence 50 times higher than the national average. And every time I say that, that kills me. Mm, yeah. And it should, it should, it should, um, it should compel other people as well 
to try to change that. So regardless of what I'm part of, or regardless of, you know, this campaign, you know, putting all that aside, I have dedicated my life to the mission of changing this, these statistics, not just for myself, but for all Native American um, peoples and women, but but also because I have a daughter. Yeah. And and I, I view all of our daughters like my daughter. So this is something that is imperative that needs to change, and I hope to do so at the end of my life. That's a good uh, approach there, Lynette, because, you know, like in Montana and obviously in Arizona, there's this appropriate or... Um, the numbers are so high regarding Indian woman in incarceration, you know, compared per capita. So there has to be a, a mechanism or support for them that they either get while they're incarcerated or not even get there, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, when I was working inside the, 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 the federal prison system there in Florence, Arizona, um, mm-hmm. we had two teams. We had a team that was inside, and then we had an outside team. Um, I was not part of the outside team because I couldn't because it was the rules of the, of the federal uh, prison that I worked at. But the outside team would help the women that was on their way out mm-hmm. to get a place, to get their children back, to get back on their feet. Sure. Like, I fully believe in the philosophy that everybody deserves a second chance. Mm-hmm. We've all made mistakes. You know, I have my own family members and nephews and nieces who made bad choices, but they can still get back on their feet and make right decisions, mm-hmm. get healthy people support around them and help them build that way. And I think we're missing that in Indian country, especially for our youth. I think that is something that um, that we need more of. Um, and not just, I don't think it's just a leader's, tribal leader's responsibility. I think it's all of us mm-hmm. who are responsible for that. Yeah, that's actually something I've sort of been interested in for probably about a year, um, is the idea of, um, what am I trying to say? Youth support? Um, when a child does something bad and then they immediately chastise the child instead of allowing them to grow. Um, stereotype. No, we talked about it last episode. Okay, I'm blanking. Um, Is it the? I know, like traditional values, just from like old ways. Um, children were able to make oh. mistakes. Yeah, yeah, zero tolerance. That's what <laughs> I was trying to yes. think. Yeah, yeah. So I've been interested in this idea of zero <laughs> tolerance and how that can negatively impact our communities, and how I think is. Indigenous peoples, we need to allow our children to go grow past their mistakes and not have a zero tolerance mindset towards them. Or not have a record when they hit 18 or mm-hmm. 19 um, because all kids make, make mistakes. And as we've seen, you know, I, I think all of us can hear a hero story somewhere within our community. You know, all of us had made probably bad decisions once or twice. Some have been thrown in jail and some haven't. But I think that... Um, pushing the message, especially to our youth, that you could absolutely, you know, overcome. I think the overcome message is what's missing for mm. all youth, not just Native youth, but I just agree. all youth, that you're absolutely able to overcome. Because what counseling, my history of counseling women, they think that because they made a mistake or they went to prison or they got into alcoholism or drugs, like they're, they're well, everybody thinks I'm a loser anyway, so I'm just going to keep drinking or I'm going to keep doing drugs. I'm going to keep doing down this path when there's, there's nobody that tells them, you know what, 
there's other options for you. And sometimes, and just in my experience, sometimes it just takes one person to tell him that good medicine that you can overcome and make better choices and your life can be so much different. Um, I, I believe that. I believe that also in the ethical standard point, like we can, we can overcome, you know, uh, um, being, uh, I think I call it, uh, uh, in Indian country, we call it lateral violence. I mm-hmm. think that we can overcome that jealousy portion, that bully mentality. Some of the things that we face in Indian country, you know, I think we can we can overcome that by educating our people to, to be better um, and that we're stronger together. Because one thing I always say is when I leave the reservation and I, I go down to Cheyenne, if I'm in down in legislation or I'm down in D.C. or wherever I may be, like they don't care if I'm. Shoshone, Arapaho, Lakota, they, they mm. see me as an indigenous person. Mm-hmm. So for us to, for anybody within a reservation to be fighting each other and putting yeah. each other down, I do not support at all. I think we're stronger together. I agree. And when we are doing the lateral, lateral oppression thing, we're basically just voiding all the things our ancestors fought for in That's order right. to get us here. Our ancestors' blood is, is on these lands, and we're doing them no justice by supporting that type of behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, with that said, Lynette, I think what really needs to happen in our tribal communities, and this is kind of goes to what your mindset is, but we're at a really crucial, critical area in our tribalism, I guess we call it, uh, in terms of educating ourselves about ourselves. You know, like this podcast, we want to educate as much as we can, even to non-tribal members, but on the uh, family front, the tribal front, um, that really needs to happen soon because a lot of that is being lost, whether it's a language or customs or whatever. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, you know, actually a lot of people ask me, you know, how did you decide to come back home? Actually, I, I, I always come up for Sundance. That's something that I've always done. Um, I came up for Sundance. Um, and I saw, I sat down with my uncle Crawford and uncle Nelson and, um, my uncle Herb, um, and they were talking about doing some initiatives on, um, helping, uh, meth addicts on our reservation, alcoholism, um, kids in the foster care system. They just had a different, you know, uh, they wanted to help our, our people, um, and they knew I had a background in nonprofit and, you know, doing different advocacy work for Indian country. Um, and they all asked me to come home. So I'm here because of them, okay. you know. And so right, a thing that, that my Uncle Crawford had told me is that um, some of the things didn't start or got off the ground like we hoped for, but you need to carry it on and make sure it happens. So yes. I'm just trying to do that. Mm. Yeah. Like I said, that's a responsibility of ours. Mm-hmm. So on the note about what we need to teach our communities and teach our youth, what types of ideologies have you been instilling in your daughters? I, I was listening to another podcast you were on, and you mentioned that you were raising advocates. And I think that's really great. So, yeah, what kinds of things have you been teaching them? Yeah, I have two older sons, and my youngest is a daughter. And um, and I think they've they probably heard me speak probably over a hundred times um, because I just been I've I've been everywhere. It's it's funny how you have a message and you have a passion, and then usually when I speak, it creates like five more speaking engagements for me. Um, and it's been like that for the past ten years. But um, my children was always has came along, and you know my son's nineteen now, but he's been seeing me 
me speak since he was like seven. <laughs> so, um, you know, and it, it's, it's funny the, the the strange places I've been. I've been in churches. I've been in places that I would have never thought I would be, sure. you know, Capitol Hill. I mean, just amazing what Creator does when he wants to, you know, pull that purpose and gifting out of you to, to push it out and disseminate it. Um, so, yes, my children have seen me speak a, a whole bunch of times. But one thing I'm really big on with my children is character character and standards and as something they heard me preach to them I mean they always say when something happens they're like okay mom okay mom you know we don't need to hear we don't need to hear a sermon on this mom because <laughs> I, I start talking about the spiritual attributes I started thinking about you got to hold your family name you know honor your family name and you know that's one thing my dad kind of like drilled in me like you know everything that has your name on it you better represent it well mm. he says I don't care if it's a math paper I don't care he would he would have my homework he is my father was the type of person if my homework was correct he would erase it all just because it wasn't legible you know so this is a type of perfection that I was instilled in me you know from my father but you know I I um I have I get good feedback on my children my current son is a full-time student and he works for the tribe um he works um in the grants office so a lot of people know him I think he knows way more people than I do uh, especially with the elders they all come up and they're like oh Kai and they all <laughs> give a hug and then he worked at Heinz for a while oh, so nice, he a lot nice. of people knows him yeah. but um yeah you know um um because my my kids have heard um I do a cyber safety uh for youth when I speak to children or I speak to kids in school um, I talked about the dangers of cyber safety a lot of people say well how does how do our kids get into human trafficking or child sex trafficking off the reservation um, I could tell you from cases that I've been involved in and cases I, I kind of handed over to um, FBI and other law enforcement entities is that social media plays a huge part in extracting our young people off of the reservation sure. mm. and a lot of people don't make that connection because they're like oh, and I've, I've had you know NAWAS I have grandma's you know told me this and say well you know um um you know we're in the rural community that child sex trafficking human trafficking doesn't affect us um but actually you know working with victims of sex trafficking especially native women um actually native women are actually uh, and native children are sought after in the human trafficking industry mm. only because we can be market at a higher um, um um expansion meaning we can be we can be marketed as pacific islander asians filipino latinos um same thing that we see in our statistics some u.s statistics and some older statistics have labeled us as black or African-American or labeled us as Latino. Um, I think a, a big portion that's missing for our data for our murdered women um, is that they're probably in some other county in some other state, but they're labeled the wrong ethnicity. Um, and this is probably why we can't locate them. But my children can recite a lot of my <laughs> trainings. Um, this is one of them. But my boys, um, because they have a lot of friends on Snapchat and Instagram and all the different social media out there for for youth um they've actually like i remember my son telling one of his friends saying and she kind of had like an explicit picture on there and she just said do you know there's older men that look for pictures like this and that can target you and you know and so you know yes i've i've raised advocates um I, they probably can do trainings better than i can <laughs> If I were one of them and I had to do a school project, I would just use one of your talks. <laughs> <laughs> and they have, and they have. <laughs> um, so on to the anti-trafficking work that you have been doing in Arizona. 
I saw this quote by you that said, due to working on eradicating human trafficking for several years, I noticed there was no organization focused on Native American victims. This is true. Um, actually, back in 2010, 11, somewhere around there is when I um, started to, I started to work for other human trafficking organizations, both locally and uh, or bo- uh, locally in Arizona. And then that organization partnered with the national and worldwide human trafficking organization, the bigger ones like Polaris and Shared Hope. Um, these are multi-million dollar human trafficking organizations. Um, so I was, I was able to work with these uh, amazing, even with United Nations. Um, and so one of the things I always ask these bigger anti-human trafficking organizations is if they had a tribal liaison or somebody on their staff who specifically focused on Native women and children, and none of them did. And um, I know Polaris has one now, um, but, you know, back then nobody did. So, and back then nobody was talking about MMIW. It it wasn't even a known concept at that time. Um, And so my work in human trafficking and child sex trafficking, um, I was always faced with numbers of Native women and children, always. And so... Um, Instead of me trying to push other organizations to focus on Native Americans, um, I just started Not Our Native Daughters. Um, One of the hiccups I had when I was working with Department of Justice Amber Alert is that some tribes wouldn't accept their trainings because they didn't want nothing to do with the government. Mm -hmm. So Not Our Native Daughters was imperative to start so that Natives can see that this is a Native-led initiative and organization, and all of the trainers were Native, not just including myself, but I had uh, Natives from BIA that would come uh, um, present with me, and then I would have survivors and victims of sexual assault domestic violence and child sex trafficking that would also present with me so it was a nation nation uh, native-led initiative um also you know again i just believe in the philosophy that if we're going to teach our people are we going to empower our people it needs to be Mm native-led yes i agree well you know the um, in the rocky mountain area you know as you know i served on our council for many years i served as chairman with uh Mm -hmm. Rocky Mountain Tribal Leaders Council, and for seven years until I came to the college here. But, um, you know, the issue really wasn't brought forward to to that organization until probably around 2010, you know, after they had the big Balkan field up in North Dakota, and there's young ladies that was become missing, and their, um, how close they was the Canadian border and all that, and from that point, it really became a, a national issue, obviously, with your help, you know, and it's still resonating out there across the country, and we understand that it's a national issue, and um, really appreciate your efforts for bringing those forward to help um, address some of those issues that happened to our tribal ladies, yeah. you know, and um, just um, like you said, uh, earlier about uh, running for Congress, um, we're so unre- underrepresented, whether at the county level or at the state level or much so the national level. You know, it takes a really strong person to even take that step, I, th- I believe, to to put yourself out there and say, I got something to bring to the table. And uh, I really appreciate that. And we'll talk a little bit more in depth about uh, what you would like to say. And uh, what voice, you know, you got a uh, representatives Holland and um, um, David's there now, you know, 
us tribal ladies, and um, it, it's good. It's a good time. Yeah, and I, I, I really truly believe that you're called where you're supposed to be called. That's so. right. Um, I actually, just from just to answer that, I mean, just to address that from a, sp- a spiritual and cultural mm-hmm. um, perspective, um, I was compelled. I mean, I was compelled to to run um, the physical part of me. The human part of me was like, no, no, no. I was asked last year and I was like, no, no, no. Yes. You know, and then in the beginning of this year, you know, I, you know, I, I had a I had a really strong vision. I didn't understand it. I engaged some of our elders in that in our sweat um, and I got the go. I got the go, and um, I consulted with our elders. Of course, you know it was it's it, it's a huge step. Yes, it is. It's a huge step. I'm not doing this for fun and games. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not doing it for the spotlight. Yes. I'm not doing it for my name to be in lights. Yeah. I'm doing it for our people. Yes. I'm doing it for change, and I'm mm-hmm. doing it for the rest of Americans who have been underrepresented, underserved underprivileged and for working class Americans. And this is something I truly believe. It's not a, a gimmick. Yeah. Amen. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the Amber Alert in Indian country and child sex trafficking trainings that you have been involved in? Yes. Um, actually, my work with them also engaged me with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, so we had a great partnership with them um, and some years back, we also we also met um, during that time. I also met with the, especially with the Amber Alert director at the time. We met with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which a lot of people are aware of, um, and they do a lot for um, finding our missing children um, and exploited children. Um, but we met with them to initiate on um, having Native American children specifically focused. Um, oh gosh, this was back in 2014, I believe, um, and so you know. Prior to running, I've, I've been at a lot of different tables, um, a lot of meetings, a lot of conversations um, with bigger entities to ensure that they're focusing, that we're not forgotten um, it, when it comes to their work. Um, and as a tribal liaison and a tribal consultant, um, my work and background in that, um, this is a lot of messaging that I have pushed forward uh to ensure that 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 is done and, and I was able to do that with with Amber Alert um, because I was just involved in so many different meetings I was always that that native person at the table saying hey what are you guys doing for Native Americans you know do you know these statistics and you know so I was like training the trainers but <laughs> um, you know that was a great time I was able to travel throughout so many different reservations throughout mm-hmm. the nation from New York to Florida to you know all to the west coast um, and I got really familiarized with different tribes um, across the nation um, and connect with with tribal uh, communities. Um, I can tell you one aspect of of trying to push um, prevention and awareness and education on on human trafficking um, was a big part was our tribal hotels and casinos. Um, And that was the biggest, I think, buy-in I got from tribes because people who worked at casinos had was seeing it within their within their community and seeing their own tribal members either being exploited or prostituting within the tribal hotels and casinos. So a lot of that not our native daughters training I did was to train tribal hotel um, hospitality workers Mm -hmm. and those who works in the casinos um, and showing ads. Um, There are some black websites that are out there that talks about um, that has pictures of people who are for sale. And 
one of the things I used to hear from tribal leaders all the time when I was trying to push a, a training was, oh, that's not happening here. That's not happening to our people. So I would pull up those ads in their, mm. in their area and be like, these are your tribal members. And then they would just be, you know, they would just be sick, sickened, you know? Mm. So, but yeah, I, I, uh, Amber Alert did give me a good start on starting Not Our Native Daughters because I was able to see what needs to be done, what is the logistics behind it. Sure. The Kaime gave me the professional background to move forward with Not Our Native Daughters, and I had already gained so many good partnerships already when I transferred over to Not Our Native Daughters. I mean, the Indian country just, just was just supportive of me. And I had different tribes begin my funding. So, you know, outside of my own tribes, I had other tribes that would donate and sponsor my trainings. So it was, it was amazing. Mm. Wow. That's so much work. A lot, of, a lot of important work, but so much and so much traveling. Um, what ways have you been taking care of yourself during all of this? Because that's a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. Just telling you just reminds me of all, all the work. Yeah, I <laughs> I'm like remembering all these things and I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. But you know what? It was a lot. I think it was, it was a lot for me as a mother too, because mm. I had to spend either a week at a time or, you know, away from my children. Um, luckily at that point I had my sister who lived with me. So she mm. kind of played the mother role when I was gone. Sure. But, um, anyways, um, yeah, you know, the, the, um, self care, self care is something I promote. Obviously I've been trained and educated on, um, um, prior trauma and past trauma. I think a lot of us in Indian country have that, whether it's yes. through boarding schools or mm -hmm. just displacement. Um, I, for one, have ex extreme trauma in my past. Um, so I try to be very tentative on uh, self-care and making sure that we're doing trauma-informed care all the time. Um, but um, one of the things I do is I, I, I go to sweat. Mm. That's one of the biggest things for me on just turning off my phone, getting away from that whole busy atmosphere um, and just going to sweat. I have a huge family support here. Um, I have a few, a, a lot of support from both Shoshones and Arapahoes here, and I'm very honored um, to have that. Um, I have people that I seek advice to. I have two mentors, um, and then I have, of course, our elders that I always take their wisdom and, and advice. Um, I try to do my best to, to keep focus and be in humility and walk in humility um, and walk in compassion. Compassion obviously is a big portion of my life. Um, it's a big portion of, of what I teach my children too. Mm. And my children are very compassionate and they always want to help the community as well. But self-care, I, I haven't done so much of it these days, um, even though I was at sweat this past Sunday. Um, but I think one of the biggest parts of self-care I think is beneficial for every person is to have somebody that they fully trust and they fully can connect with and you can go and just unfold yes. invent everything that has been the biggest part of mm -hmm. my mentality and stable stableness I would say <laughs> you know your journey into the um, running for a candidate for the national office and it's good to hear your process of how you take care of yourself you know, um, before you think about others. And, you know, just historically, um, you'll be going into a system that necessarily wasn't ours. You know, even our tribal councils across the country have very little traditional um, ownership to them, you know, based off the Constitution. And, you know, we was governed by societies and clans, mostly, most of our tribes. And I think um, I really feel that 
America and probably the world needs tribal wisdom in this turbulent times we're in. You know, you look at our, uh, wonder why sometimes our tribal governments are in disarray or you, all you got to do is look at the national level, you know, because our, our government is formed after that. Right. But um, I'd like to get your thoughts on how or what you would like to bring to the table in terms of, as Jock Hay said earlier, about indigenous wisdom and contributions and stuff and how that would help uh, not only tribal people but non-tribal people as well. Yeah, I think that our um, traditional and our ceremonial ways um, can benefit the greater good of the outside community. Yes. And I think even on a, on a federal and national and even worldwide level, um, any efforts that you've seen um, from Indian country, whether it was AIM, whether it's the water protection rights uh, that we've seen at, 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 um, in Cannibal up in Sandy Rock, um, up with my other tribe, you know, you always seen Native Americans, they're fighting just for basic human rights. Yes. Just basic human decency, basic human rights, and protection for the land and water. I don't think that's a lot to ask. I don't. I don't. Mm. I don't think that's a that's a I lot know. to ask, but I think our voices are has 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 been so oppressed, you know, throughout history, um, and this is what I'm fighting against. Me running for office is actually fighting against the oppression of Native Americans, mm-hmm. and I definitely believe, you know, once elected in that place, I would definitely bring all of my cultural um, aspects and and the wisdom and everything that I've been taught um, and to, to bring to the table. I think um, cultural aspects from all the 576 tribes in the nation um, can bring something to the table on just human good, just human well-being and how we relate to one another. Because as us as indigenous people, we believe in so many spiritual aspects and cultural aspects. Like for myself, I get a lot of signs. I get a lot of, you know, eagles visited, visiting me at the right time in my mm-hmm. life. And I know it means something, you know, and just a lot of different things that I think the rest of the world has become disconnected from. Um, And so I think that type of view, I think you you can't just live your life in in one perspective. It's it's definitely heart, mind, body, and spirit. It takes up all attributes of who you are. Um, And I think it should be all attributes of policy. Um, We have to consider everything, um, especially um, more attention um, towards what do Native Indigenous people think about this? Mm-hmm. And I think that's mm. what's missing in the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the idea of uh, our resiliency as tribal people, you know, like I said, the basic water, basic rights for water, clean water, or uh, maybe in some states voting rights and some of those types mm-hmm. of things. But we're very resilient how we, um, as a people, approach those types of things or live through those types of things. I read a study where back in 1972, 1973, when AIM was, you know, active, and um, they was looking at bettering their communities, tribal communities. But in terms of housing and funding and all that, the recent report in 2012 basically says it's pretty much the same. Inflation changes the numbers, but, 
you know, not many change has come to Indian country. And I know you'll be an advocate for that. You know, we're, we're uh, funded at 46% for health care, 42% for housing, you know, on that level need funding. Right. So it's, um, it's some interesting numbers that you'll get to bring to the table. You know, yeah, I the numbers don't lie either. And for someone like me who focuses on statistics and research, mm-hmm. you know, anybody who understands the dynamics and logistics of research and data, they understand that statistics is only a snapshot of the, of a real of problem, the meaning that the numbers are higher. Yeah, you know, and so you know, I don't, I don't find it, um, I don't find it shocking that the top forests, uh, the top five poorest counties in America are occupied by uh, reservation land. Um, Most know that, you know, the Oglala Oyata Nation um, in Pine Ridge uh, tops the poorest nation in in the nation. Um, But they were the ones who led on AIM. They were the ones who led on so many different initiatives. Um, So it's not surprising to me that they're the most oppressed as well. Um, But we we see oppression in every reservation, some element or another. I think some of us do better in certain areas than others. um, But I think that um, oppression and systemic racism, institutionalized racism, Mm -hmm. these are all big factors when it comes to Indian country. Um, And again, the the numbers never lie. And I'm I'm big on numbers. So, yeah. yeah. Um, On the point about basic human needs, I saw this video a couple months ago. It was by this black pastor. His name is T.D. Jakes. And he was saying, we want what you want. Like, we want to be able to walk into the store without the suspicion that we're still in. We want to be able to drive through town without people thinking we don't belong. And he said a bunch of other things, but I think the most powerful statement he said was, we want to be able to walk down the street without being convicted, tried, and then executed all right there in the street. Bravo to Bishop T.D. Jakes. Um, Actually, I've seen Bishop T.D. Jakes uh, speak a few times. Yeah, he's one of my favorites. Yeah, I like. (laughs) I've been to the Potter's House in Dallas, Texas. Yeah, I've been there a couple times. Yes, so uh, it's so funny that you brought up T.D. Jakes (laughs) because. I, I actually love T.D. Jakes. But yes, uh, Bishop does a very good job on bringing those things to, to light. Um, he, he speaks for fairness and, ju- and justification for, for all people. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, too, that he always incites Native American and Indigenous mm-hmm. people, too, mm-hmm. um, in, in, those, in those topics and those, those sermons that he, that he displays. Um, I just want to share a, a small story that happened to my son, Akai, um, a few years back. Um, my, my kids are both Native American and African American, just like yourself. And um, so a few years back, we, we, <laughs> we were leaving the, the Sundance grounds after in the morning, and we were heading home, and um, we lived in Fort Washakie at the time. And so we came to um, right there near um, Frank Wise building, um, where Heinz is at. And my son was driving, and at the time, he was 17, and um, he did have a permit. And um, so we got pulled over because we were going four miles past the, the speeding limit. And so we got pulled off. Um, and when we pulled over, um, the officer said, Hey, you're going a little bit too fast. And we gave him everything, you know, registration and everything. And, um, my son's, um, um, his driver permit was only paper. And so it wasn't really legible because I got, I I spilled coffee on it. I think (laughs) (laughs) I'm big on coffee too. (laughs) Um, but, um, so basically we gave him the information and, 
the white officer made my son sit in the car as he ran his name. In the police car? In the police car. They made my son get out, and he said, well, I'm going to run his name, but I need him to sit in the cop car. And I was just in a pause because if I knew if I raged out, it would have been 10 times worse, Mm. and it probably would have been taken out on my son and not myself. Mm -hmm. And I really had to bite my lip there because that shook the core of me. And so... Um, my son, of course, obliged. He'd had no problem with it. He went and sat in the cop car with the officer. And the whole time I, I just prayed and cried cause I was terrified. Um, you know, everything checked out of course. Um, but that measure to be implemented on a 17 year old kid yeah. Yeah. was unacceptable. Yeah. Um, but that's the types of things we face mm-hmm. and that's the types of things have not only African-Americans face with, of course, this is why we have the black lives mu- movement. Um, uh, but it is also something that native Americans face as well. So there's yeah. a lot of parallel, um, I think social justice, uh, civil rights, and just again, back to that, that basic human decency that we're all fighting for. You know, another thing that I've always, I've, I stated before is, you know, um, um, we never, uh, nobody that that's not of color never had to uh, suffer not being served. I know like my grandparents and, and probably some of your gra- elders or grandparents um, back in the day, they couldn't leave the reservation without a piece of paper. Yes. Mm. Uh, a lot of people don't know these things. Um, and I know these stories because, you know, my, my father was, was in the boarding school. Um, and one thing I always say is I, I never went to boarding school, but I suffer the passed down trauma of the boarding school. I, pa- I have the associate trauma of the boarding school. And I think that um, a similar the boarding school uh, assimilation that has been um, imputed on our people uh, is something that we're still facing today. People just can't identify it. Mm. Now with, um, you know, you, you're running for statewide office, you know, it's pretty national. Mm-hmm. Uh, what message are you bringing to the rest of the state, you know, since it's, um, or such a small percentage of tribal people, which have a lot to offer, obviously, through experience and, like you said, ceremonial issues, but how have you been reaching out across um, cultures to, uh, and what kind of message are you bringing them in terms of what you could bring to the whole state? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, I'm I'm running for U.S. House of Representatives. I'm trying to get the Democratic nominee at this point. Primaries are August 18th, Mm -hmm. Um, and so I have my opponent, who's also a Democrat, Mm -hmm. um, Beach, um, and I think the, the message that I'm trying to bring to kind of separate us um, is um, our backgrounds. I already have federal experience background. I already have experience facing the folks in Capitol Hill. If you've never been to Capitol Hill, it can be very daunting. It can be very intimidating. Um, but I've already had that experience. I've done two congressional briefings, one on tribal youth suicide, mm-hmm. uh, one on human trafficking in Indian country. And I did another I did another one just last year. On, uh, I did a, te- a, a testified to Congress on the protection of our grizzly bears so they wouldn't be trophy hunted in the state of Wyoming and in the protection of our our Tribal Heritage Act that's been in existence since 1953. So, you know, 
facing people, lobbying, um, both on the state legislation and a federal legislation is something that I can bring to the table um, and which my opponent does not have. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also, <clears throat> excuse me, I've also have experience on working in bipartisanship. I, any position of office, you have to have bipartisanship. Sure. You have to be able to work constructively with Republicans. You know, I don't hate Republicans because they view different policies issues than I do, sure. but I would like to work together and see what are the similarities and how can we implement them so that our constituents and our the, our greater nation can benefit from it. Sure. You know, so I don't get <clears throat> I don't get caught in the division of that. Um, I always try to view myself as as a peacemaker um and you know dr martin luther king is one of my my heroes and you know and many others who promote peace um i think the current administration did a lot of damage in in um um, making a gap of the social divide even in the political and in in society um i would be honored to be part of bringing us together um and i think that we're better when we're together and you know prior to the present administration we we did a lot better working on policies and reform mm-hmm. and um, right now we're living in a pandemic and the, I think the first rule order in 2021 is going to be COVID relief not only mm-hmm. for families but also for businesses um, we have to support our small businesses and for me and you know Wyoming is built up on mom and pops and, and yes. biz, small you know ownership and, they, and it has been for for generations and generations mm-hmm. I want to make sure those generations um, are still supported and they're able to move forward in their businesses because we, we all know the favorite burger place here or the favorite taco place there or the yeah. you know the tire shop here these are all local ownership mm-hmm. i want to make sure i represent these people so that we can still benefit from their businesses exactly. and and so um i think that's what's missing um on a on a on a national level because we've seen a lot of bailouts go toward multinational banks yeah. and corporations, corporations but the smaller guys who have just five staff members, yeah. you know, five employees, those, those, those business owners have not been supported. Um, so and another thing is just, you know, my efforts, I, <laughs> you could probably look at my work and tell you, tell that I'm not afraid. I'm very bold when it comes to imposing initiatives. Um, I proposed governor Gordon last year at UW to have a, a missing murdered indigenous persons task force. And, you know, I was so honored that he obliged. Um, so, you know, proposing policies and proposing legislation, I've already done it. And I'm going to continue to still do it whether I'm elected or not. But I think that's what is a big, um, that that separates me from my current opponent, is that I already have this this experience. And I already have this experience here in Wyoming. And I think that's important. Yes. And that's a, a big step in terms of reaching out to other I guess constituents is the ability to be articulate like you are to be able to uh, know broader issues, you know, and that coming from a, a tribal person is very, sometimes unique, but it's, it's a very bold move, like you said. So I'm, I'm glad that you're undertaking this effort, you know. My strength is offered for all of the American people, all that have been underserved or sure. underrepresented and for all of those of us who are in the working class. Yeah, because you see, there's 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 an interest in tribes, you know, and you probably see that in Wyoming, there's people want to learn a little more about us because for years, we were just this box in Wyoming, you know, a little box I sat in the middle of Wyoming, but now there's more people saying, hey, what, 
they bring some to the table. So I think it's a very opportune time. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked about your heroes, uh, MLK, and then we also talked about TD Jakes a little bit. But currently, are there any women in politics that you look up to or inspire you? Yes, actually, you know, ever since uh, Congresswoman Deb Holland has been in office, um, I've, she's heard from me a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> so has Sharice uh, Davis. Mm. Um, these women, I think, have sent the benchmark for all of us women and Native mm. women that um, this can be attainable. It could be achieved. Mm-hmm. Um, not only have I worked on the Not Invisible Act and Savannah's Act with Congresswoman Deb Holland, um, but also um, um, she called me up uh, just like a few weeks ago just to encourage me on my, and she gave me some pointers yeah. Um, yeah. on my race. I thought that was very honorable. You know, I always say, and this is some of my preaching to my kids, but I always say that good leadership um, always helps other leadership that is on the rise. Mm. Um, I think that um, leadership is important. I think it needs to be transparent. Mm -hmm. I think integrity is at the top of the list of leadership. And I think a lot of people want to get into leadership with the wrong motives and the wrong Mm. intent. They want it because they want the attention or they want, you know, to be the top dog. And, Mm -hmm. you know, leadership, actually, if you really talk about leadership, it's it's a burden because Mm. you have to consider every single person in your community. Uh, You have to represent them and their issues and their opinions, even if it's different from yours and you have to show compassion to every single person so leadership is something that I've studied I've researched I've read books on um, something that that um, I looked at other leaders and see how they demonstrate leadership Um, and this is this is what kind of made who I am today but being a mother of three children I have instilled leadership in my children what it takes to be a leader how do you do that with integrity how do you do that with your communication and how do you do that with your heart Mm. wow I love all of that. Um, yeah, so we'll take a short break, and then after that, we'll come back and talk with Latera LeBeau on murdered, missing Indigenous women, girls, and people. So thank you, Lynette, for sharing all of that. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. I really oh, yeah, you did a great job. You'll, you'll do well. Mm-hmm. Ho, ho, ho. Hello, everyone. We are back for the second half of today's episode. Please stay tuned. We got a lot of great more info and statistics and facts about the murdered, missing, and indigenous woman movement. For the second half of the episode, we are speaking with Latera LeBeau. Latera LeBeau belongs to the Northern Arapaho and Eastern Shoshone nations. She is a small business owner, entrepreneur, and community advocate. She is the owner of two businesses, both of which are 100% Native-owned, and those businesses include the Recon Automotive Detail, LLC, and Kristen's Design and Marketing Company. As a community advocate, Latera's goal is to inform the public about different causes and how important some of these social justice issues are through the local, state, and federal levels. She is the President of Policy Committee for the Wind River Head Start Program, 
As a former chair, she used to be the treasurer for the ETT Head Start Parent Committee. She is a committee member for the Health Advisory Board at the Wind River Head Start. She is also a communications consultant for events and programs that advocate in environmental conservation and economic development. She is the Wind River Coordinator in association with WISAC, and she works on the Wyoming Missing and Murdered Indigenous Peoples Task Force of Wyoming. She is a Ford Fremont County PAC committee member and is currently the Wind River Reservation Representative. She is also the executive assistant and coordinator for the Lynette Grable campaign team. Well, thank you, Latera, for joining us today. My first question is, it's sort of a general question, and I'm sure you get it all the time, but I think it's important that it's stated, heard, and understood. But what is MMIW? And can you talk to us about the statistics surrounding that? Yes, absolutely. And I want to thank you first and foremost for having me today as following uh, Lynette's segment there. She did really well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the MMIW uh, platform that we want to speak about, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, uh, which it originally started out with, uh, it's recently been changed to uh, relate to the Wyoming uh, bill that's been initiated to Missing and Murdered Indigenous Peoples now to also involve the male subjects that are uh, also part of the epidemic. Mm. So again, uh, the statistics that we really lean back on are going to lean towards the women and girls, though, with these stats. And some of the stats that uh, we would like to go into, I mean, we can't begin to tell you about the violence that our women face. And it's not just on the reservations. It's down the street. It's in your urban neighborhood. And it's in your homes. It's pretty much everywhere you look. Um, these numbers speak for themselves. Yeah, it's surprising to me how few people actually know about these events. Uh, in 2018, a study revealed that only 116 of the 5,712 cases of missing and murdered Native women and girls were logged into the Department of Justice's nationwide database. So a lot of those numbers uh, that we face in our stats that I've come across is uh, really how we collect that. Mm. And so when we talk about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, that's been a uh, lack of attention there as far as how we're collecting that data and what type of sources we're utilizing to accumulate that information and how uh, we're able to store that and report it. So a lot of those uh, areas that we address are going to be through our uh, jurisdictional uh, access points as well as the different departments that we are uh, effortlessly working towards and with, uh, such as the uh, local police departments, FBI, DCI. I mean, there's a long list of different areas that we are trying to really bring together in coordination to help our collaboration efforts. So uh, as far as some, some stats that I can drop on that are uh, more than four in five American Indian and Alaska Native women have experienced violence in their lifetime. And 84% of Native women have experienced violence as well in their lifetimes. And the CDC has reported that a murder is the third leading cause of death among American Indian and Alaska Native women. And that rate of violence on the reservation can be up to 10 times higher than the national average. So with a lot of the stats that I've collected there and doing uh, my research as well as associating with different uh, national orgs, 
I mean, it really uh, blew my mind as far as what we're really uh, putting out there as far as what access points we can utilize and to create better uh, data analysis on that, which I think uh, where my involvement came in with YSAC and meeting uh, a few representatives from there and being recruited on the uh, MMIP task force of Wyoming was really trying to be the, not necessarily the full backbone, but a part that, you know, a piece of it as mm. far as yeah. how I can help. And mm -hmm. a big part of that involvement would be uh, my father who was involved with law enforcement, uh, as well as just a lot of my family uh, generations that have been involved with law enforcement in my past and hearing the stories and really watching um, my father get ready back in the day, preparing to get out there on the field and um, do his job, you know, and go on, be on the call of duty. It was uh, really surreal as far as what risks are out there and what risk he was taking to really secure our community. And a lot of that was towards pointing towards domestic violence uh, against women. So to have a realization of myself being a Native American woman, Arapaho, and having uh, two daughters and a son, uh, that, that really put me into another perspective of what am I teaching my kids and how am I securing their future, like my dad and my mother had done for myself mm. and my siblings. So that experience in that area of advocacy uh, that uh, my parents really played a part of, it it really helped me to kind of go in this direction as far as doing the research and just being the boots on the ground to help uh, narrow down the information and how we can contribute that towards our stats. So, And I saw this article online that said that in Billings, Montana, they had just opened a new task force office, and it was, I believe, one of seven throughout the country. Um, so seven total task force offices, that's, it's a good step in the right direction, but that's not a lot, right? Um, no, it's not. And a lot of uh, our operations thus far nationally, as far as these task force you talk about, um, it's, it's a beginning. You know, even when I worked with the uh, legislative uh, representatives for Wyoming, uh, after we had uh, put the bill out and went over it and we were able to give a testimony on that, it we were really excited to take that uh, progressive step, but it's it's very minimal. Uh, mm -hmm. So bringing uh, coming to the reality with that was we we wanted to celebrate, but we, our celebration couldn't really be concluded because it's such a small step. But it's the beginning, and we're hoping with that small step we can take much uh, bigger steps towards uh, really bringing coordination out across the board with these different areas of. Uh, uh, you know, the jurisdiction issues that we deal with and different departments that should be on board with it, so. You know, the, the first step, obviously, for MMIW was attention, but I think coordination is probably the most important part. You want to bring the issue forward, but the coordination, like Jock Hay mentioned earlier, about a, about a, a task force, you know, sometimes people just end up meeting you know, and discussing things. But I know a, a couple instances like in Montana where they did have a couple um, Native women that was missing. And then it was actually family members that found them. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the coordination with uh, law, local law enforcement, 
um, didn't do the necessary steps or whatever. So I think that's probably really important. You know, it's, it's, it's was a relief that they was found. Unfortunately, they was deceased, but actually family members found them and not law enforcement or FBI or whatever after they was already um, reported missing. Um, yeah, exactly. To touch a little bit on that subject, um, when the news reports and the news releases came out, and uh, social media was a big a big uh, access point there for that, when the family started to reach out and say, you know, my family member's missing, mm-hmm. you know, and to know we have to wait within a certain amount of time to report missing people, and... A lot of the times, unfortunately, through our uh, intake uh, that happens through the different uh, departments is uh, waiting 24 hours, of course, and then whether or not this person is a habitual, you know, missing person. And sometimes the information relates towards either they're out partying or they're, you know, they left with a friend unannounced. But in most cases, when the family members do end up being found and unfortunately, you know, are, you know, deceased. Um, that's where, that's what really triggered me was to say, well, where was, where was the efforts put forth on the departments? What mm. efforts did the, the, the uh, police put forward? And why wasn't this a high alert as it would be with, you know, a Caucasian missing, you mm-hmm. know, individual and that's a lot of the uh, fight that we have in this as as uh, advocates or uh, even working in domestic violence, understanding that uh, difference between uh, racial biasm. So uh, <coughs> that's something we really want to address as far as how do we how do we access that and differentiate are the priorities on the uh, racial standard, and with that. Uh, some of the families really did put their uh, feet on the ground and just do the work themselves, yes. you know. And that was the sad part for me was with uh, having family in law enforcement and thinking of it, I'm, you know, we had control of that, you yes. know, as, as far as saying, why didn't we have more police force out there? Why, what can we change in this? And so to actually be uh, a volunteer in this in the beginning with the MMIW task force, um, that's where my experience kind of spoke for itself to say, well, you know, my father never had an excuse. You know, mm-hmm. he was always, you know, going above and beyond his call of duty sure. for his job. And so, and the same with my mother, being a grassroots uh, generation and working with uh, domestic violence survivors and being part of a domestic violence alliance. Um, they really taught me growing up how to put forth the best effort they can because it's about these victims at the end of the day. It's about their families at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And it's about how we can do better to serve that area of concern, which is through our departments and how they're operating. So jurisdictional issues, again, and how that process is uh, done correctly to help, you know, I guess, find better uh, procedures. I mean, that's that was my main focus was to, to ask the questions and to fear forward on that because a lot of people said, I don't want to ask the police this. I don't want to test the police. I don't want to, you know, but in reality, we're not testing them if we're really able to articulate uh, ourselves in a manner to say, how can we coordinate? How can we work together? It seems that in most of these cases, a lot of the blame is put onto the victim for going out or, 
you know, they might say, oh, they were, they should never been out doing this and that. But yeah, there's not, I don't know, the blame is just being put in the wrong spot. Yeah, and I have to agree with that. I mean, and that's where I kind of say when the missing persons reports are made, uh, they usually say that, well, this person's always taking off or this person's Mm. always uh, hanging out with this group. Uh, So you are absolutely right, and it's unfortunate that that uh, perspective has to put out uh, be put out, uh, you know, about the individuals that do come up missing. But... uh, what action are we taking as leaders or even people behind the badge or individuals in in that position of power or authority? I mean, how are we holding that area accountable to say, you know, let's not always assume or let's not create allegations against these individuals because they're, they're human at the end of the yeah. day. And if we can't hold our accountability in our positions that we sign up for, I think we're failing those individuals or those families. And these families need protection with this epidemic or with the uh, high rate of violence that we experience on the reservations. So, again, that's, I mean, that's unfortunate, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And we've talked a little bit about the task task forces. Can you talk to us about the bill that was signed by the Trump administration on November 26, 2019? Um, yeah, we actually are going to be having some meetings uh, coming up here in the future, the Operation Lady Justice. And honestly, I'm going to have just a little segment on that. But uh, with that, uh, we have to be really careful with those task force that have uh, been initiated. Uh, they've opened uh, half a dozen cold case offices, um, which in my opinion, to my research and uh, analytics that I have, they aren't really offices, but the reality is that the Trump administration has only committed $1.5 million to the entire uh, Operation Lady Justice. So uh, with that being said, to me as an advocate or uh, as a, uh, having experience in the financial background or uh, grants association as far as how to uh, uh, get funding for these you know different programs and operations that are necessary, mm-hmm. uh, that's nothing. And mm-hmm. I don't think it will achieve anything as you cannot do anything like this without every aspect being fully funded. So with that, with that 1.5 million, I think there's a lot more funding that can go into the different areas as far as saying we need every department covered. We mm-hmm. need every advocacy covered. And in order to do that, it takes the man hours uh, to be initiated. And working with the uh, different police departments, and we say, well, why weren't you there? Why didn't you uh, initiate you know, the search? Or why didn't you initiate uh, action quicker? Well, quite frankly, with the reservation being as big as it is uh, on the Wind River, for ex- uh, example, we have minimal operation amount of officers. And so, and they have to cover a wide range of acreage. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to be on one side of the reservation and then to get to the other when you have such minimal staff. And not only that training goes into it, uh, reaching out to different advocates that have that necessary training and certification, it's the hours are costly. And I think uh, with experience, me being a volunteer, you know, in majority of this time up to this point, I mean, a lot of people need that uh, cover as far as travel expenses. And it starts to add up, especially when it comes to certification and training and having those officers on hand 
and being able to pay them and make sure that they, because they have families at the end of the day, they have to take care of. And a lot of the time, they're sacrificing majority of their time to be on the field. So imagine with all the uh, cold cases or the cases in existence, if we really wanted to cover every little detail of those cases, we're going to yeah. have to assign an X amount of people to one mm-hmm. case to make sure we're getting full detail and coverage on the investigation process. And so that's just the experience um, of me being able to interview a few of the stakeholders we have uh, with the police departments and understanding why are we failing as leaders or as authorities to not fulfill these policies and procedures towards uh, really giving justice to these families and these victims uh, because they're the ones who are suffering at the end of the day from this epidemic. Mm -hmm. And what kind of things have you sort of been looking into or what kind of conclusions have you come to as to why there has been this failure? Um, A lot of that is probably going to relate to the uh, data and analysis and how the data is collected. Um, I know from a lot of our research that we've done uh, between myself, WISAC, and other uh, advocacy programs, a lot of it is to say, well, how do we collect the data? How do we narrow down the victim? How do we know they're uh, native or indigenous or Hispanic or, you know, Latino? And a lot of them and that I found through our coroner uh, reports is that they don't have the ethnicity labeled on there. So when they're found and they really check it off and they don't know, a lot of the reports are missing that. And there's really honestly no accountability um, that we've noticed through our research as far as saying our elected uh, officials to say, hey, how come we're not, we're not following our policy and procedures? How come there's not a proper procedure to mm-hmm. make sure the reports are accurate to the point of the different departments stepping in? And what happens when the local police departments come in and it's a Native American, the FBI usually has to step into place and take that case over. So when the FBI takes over, you can imagine the hands that it's gone through mm-hmm. after it gets to that point. So you have a coroner, FBI, uh, if there's uh, drugs involved, DCI comes involved, and then also the police department. So you have a lot of hands uh, you know, of it going through, and then a lot of eyes that are go over it as well. So once it gets to like the fifth person, you could see where that... Uh, paperwork or that process uh, kind of falls falls out of place with the consistency. And I think in our research that we've done, that's what we found uh, the biggest issue on is how are we storing these reports? How are we storing the data? And and why? And there's been a biased, uh, a lot of biased actions that have been taken place based on ethnicity that we're finding. And so that's uh, our main concern and focus is to make sure that we're able to to sit down. And that's where the coordination efforts really come in and how we're uh, making collaborative efforts to create that consistency, to have our accuracy down to the point of, because it's forensics, it's an investigation, mm-hmm. it's our justice system. And if our justice system is failing those yeah. investigation processes, I mean, it's it's a scary thing. It's a scary yeah. thing to think about oh, because, yeah. you know, if somebody came up missing in your family, I mean, you would want to make sure that there is, you know, the most attention on that individual. Mm-hmm. And that's where we need to fight for justice for those families and victims. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. So 
that whole side of things has been mishandled. And can you also talk to about how the law isn't necessarily on our side and touch on the jurisdictional power that tribes and reservations have and don't have? Because I think that's also been working against us a little bit. Um, yeah, actually. Um, well, let's see here. As difficult as the current statistics are defined uh, about the total number of missing and murdered Native American women, uh, the historical data is even less available. So um, I guess with the law enforcement coming in and the concern of saying the law isn't on our side, I guess the law, when I've uh, done interviews with them, is it's not so much they're not on our side. Maybe it's just they don't know how to identify with the uh, different uh, racial identities, such as indigenous in this instance that we speak on. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of a divisive subject to uh, talk about just just having family in the uh, police force or having family in that authority uh, position. And um, with that, a lot of people say the police don't do their job, you know, and that's, I think that's an opinion as far as with one bad officer that's not filing mm -hmm. the reports versus a handful of 10 good officers, you know, that's, that's where that little, uh, I guess, miscommunication happens and misunderstanding happens. Um, what I've run into is that the uh, different police departments or officers just aren't trained in this area or they uh, don't know how to go about when it comes to missing persons because most of the time when these missing person reports are made, um, a high percentage of them are just either runaways. Um, they're just habitual, uh, you know, they go AWOL, they go out to party, and they end up, you know, they end up, we kind of know where they're at already, you know. And unfortunately, that's how the misreporting goes on that. And then, of course, it always falls back on the law enforcement. It's, it's their fault, you know. But in reality, it's the communication of the family as well. On, on how this person operates or how this individual's uh, habits kind of take place. And, and there's a lot of misunderstanding there to really identify, is this person missing and do we have to put a, you know, an alert out on it? So again, taking into uh, consideration that you know, the police officers or the laws are on our side, it has to really go with those collaboration efforts and how we communicate with those different departments, I believe. Uh, I know from my experience, uh, a lot of people are a little apprehensive to go into it and say, um, I'm going to go forth and want to work with the departments uh, or to say they have bad experiences from, you know, uh, generational trauma that they've dealt with. And a lot of them are uh, almost fearful to go forward and work with authorities. But as an advocate, that's where I would like to bridge that gap and say, well, here's here's maybe a better approachment or maybe here's a better initiative and get my community to understand that, you know, the law is not always bad in any case, you know, and I can understand there's probably stories out there that I've read about and articles that I've read about, about the failure of these different departments. But again, it's, it's really putting our legislators and our leaders and our community representatives in accountability as well to make those changes through policy and law and to make those better judgment calls as far as um, having our voice utilized and to say we need to educate and continue to bring awareness about it by educating each other and talking about this because it's swept under the rug most of the time. 
And I don't honestly don't want the law to get a bad name versus the individual that's just out, you know, on a weekend party, you know, and it's, it's everybody's human at the end of the day. And I think we need to all focus and have the same focus. If, if it's a really uh, big concern to say, no, this person is really missing. And we need to have better awareness on that from the um, cooperation from the uh, departments for them to step up and take action, you know, just don't brush it off because in the cases that we talk about in Montana with mm -hmm. the family just taking their own initiative, I mean, there was a big failure on the department's behalf there because it's almost like they, they didn't really believe what was happening because they wanted to wait the full 24 hours. And even then the inconsistencies were there with the uh, reports from families and whatnot. So again, just, just taking action and sitting down with the families and being able to uh, get the correct information out there and educating that policy and procedure, I think, for those bills that have been made out with amongst these task force. So it's a, it's a work in progress to outline that correctly and how to do mm -hmm. it efficiently. Yeah, so you brought up a lot of good points. Um, but sort of what I was sort of kind of getting at when I brought up the law was um, that tribal courts don't hold any jurisdiction jurisdictional power over non-American Indian mm -hmm. or Alaska Natives and therefore cannot prosecute or punish them for their crimes that happen on the reservation and sort of how that has worked against the tribes trying to collect this data and trying to open these cases. Um, yes, and that has been, like, that's a really good point. Uh, that's actually been the issue that we've uh, been able to actually talk about through our different advocacy uh, programs and our different uh, departments here locally is how that's balanced. And I think I mentioned that just a little bit earlier as far as saying that's where the local departments take over and then the FBI takes over. And so a lot of that... Um, I guess just failure to pay attention to um, is how that's being coordinated or how it's being communicated in between those um, departments. And that's been a big issue that the Native communities have been fighting against uh, for a while because, uh, for example, I know a gal had talked about, well, uh, Caucasian men can come onto the reservation, create a, commit a crime, and uh, haul, you know, just haul off get and go back across the border that's, yeah, that's wild. of the that's reservation so wild. and get away with it. And yeah. uh, the police department doesn't have jurisdiction access. So, again, uh, the collaboration efforts that mm -hmm. I really, really try to uh, put out there when we have these uh, coordination meetings is to create that communication across the board and have transparency. You know, I know a lot of departments uh, kind of get territorial on their information and um, how their case-by-case -case, uh, operations are. But I think when with the MMIW or the MMIP task force initiatives, that's where we're really trying to clean that uh, area up to say, well, this is the process that we need to create, and this is the, the policies that need to be in place in order to create better information access points because – 
when we had our uh, last MMIW task force meeting uh, through the state of Wyoming and before uh, this uh, pandemic of COVID hit, uh, one of the officers uh, here local, actually, one of the chief of police said, you know, we talked about Amber Alert and how we're, um, do we have Amber Alert access here, you know, and I don't know how that process works and kind of educating the different um, programs of how it works. And that was the issue with uh, jurisdictional understanding is saying, well, uh, an Amber Alert on a missing person or just, I mean, a missing person's report across the board, um, he said, I really kind of don't look at the jurisdictional at that point. You know, the restrictions that I have. A missing person is a missing person. A crime committed is a crime committed. Mm-hmm. And when I feel like somebody's, you know, breaking the law, committing a crime, or there's a missing person, this uh, individual, uh, this chief of police really was like, I have to think of the victims. I have to think of the families, mm-hmm. and I have to think of the law that I uphold, and uh, we'll deal with jurisdiction mm-hmm. later. Because if we had <laughs> few, if we Seriously. had, <laughs> if we had full communication across the board, he had mentioned jurisdictional uh, problems wouldn't be an issue. Mm-hmm. And because uh, authorities mm-hmm. and uh, those who are in the position of authority to um, execute those decisions uh, on what to do. Uh, they should all be on the same page and they should all have the same goal and the same initiative at the end of the day. And that's to protect the people. Mm-hmm. And that's where their uh, service is best uh, placed because that's what they signed up for, you know? So I was really happy to hear that officer step up and state that because I said, wow, you know, I thought, I thought, you know, you'd really get burned for saying, oh, I, I had to take over or I, you know, I didn't know if there was going to be a battle between the different, you know, departments or how that worked either. So I was being educated in the process, too, as far as understanding how it's balanced. And so to have um, everybody that was in lead at that uh, roundtable at that time it really brought a lot of clarity to me as a uh, community coordinator and uh, how how easy it is, I mean, to communicate because we're all at the table. So everybody had a chance to have their voice. Everybody had a chance to give their input and uh, really uh, divulge into the information of how we can structure this and how we can create a process and procedure on the uh, MMIW task force initiatives and how we need to uh, either create training amongst those different departments as well. So that way, when they went back to their uh, areas, uh, departments, they could relay that and maybe even think about implementing that training. And uh, my colleague, Lynette Grable, in uh, the earlier segment, that's where she really came in with her experience of having that hands-on training and really uh, associating with those different areas of uh, expertise. And she was a really uh, big plus in that area for us to be able to coordinate with these departments as well on what what her experience was mm-hmm. and how she could probably benefit these uh, different task force up here, up north, you know, from where she came from in Arizona. So to have her input and her voice on that was really vital and crucial to the information we needed to develop a uh, standard procedure and a lot of her uh, work has been taken into recommendation on what we need to either do or what we need to apply in those different areas so I'm hoping with our initiatives that we've taken thus far through our research and analytic uh, center we can uh, be able to start uh, really utilizing our uh, experts you know that are 
really trained in these areas to uh, create training later on down the road for this. So I, I don't know how that's going to go, but I'm hoping it, it you know is executed at some point. You know what, uh, Terry, I'm, I'm glad you're talking about these issues and very articulately, but one thing is um, I've seen a write-up, an article, and I can't remember what newsletter it was, but it talked about you know, the MMIW and a lot of these indigenous women that became, that was missing, and they was found. Unfortunately, um, they was deceased. Uh, one of them was uh, Misty Upham. Remember, she was uh, probably the most famous one, that um, Indian actress that died up in, uh, they found in Muckleshoot, Washington. But um, a lot of times, and it was written from the family's perspective and the victim perspective, is they may find these ladies and say that coroner's determination is hypothermia, but they don't know. I mean, the, the, the article mentioned that there was really no follow-up or investigation in terms of why they was found where they was. You know what I mean? Something let them out there, whether they um, wandered off or something. somebody was chasing them or something happened to them. So I think... Um, like you mentioned about the $1.5 million that the Trump administration gave, which is dropping a bucket if you look at all Indian country. Right. Uh, how are you guys addressing some of those issues for the victims' families? Because I know that even happened locally. Yeah, I was actually going to bring up the local issues. Yeah. Um, I know of a few cases where uh, I actually personally knew some of these victims okay. that had mm. been murdered in my past. And uh, growing up and really doing my research and asking around uh, to understand, I mean, I knew why these victims, uh, I mean, I'm not saying I, it's the facts, but I mean, I, I, I was clearly aware of what the issue was. Mm-hmm. And I think... Uh, when these individuals that I personally knew were murdered and they were deemed, you know, uh, they drowned or, you yeah. know, or, or exactly. you know, we find out in these reports that they were uh, beaten beyond recognition or, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's different outlines in those cases that we find as a data and research analysis that we, you know, uncover and we say, why wasn't this mentioned or why wasn't this outlined? yet we have a clear explanation or um, report from the family on what has been uh, concluded in those um, reportings, our investigations. And now the issue there is, uh, I guess to be quite frank, it's dealing with the different coroners and Mm -hmm. the different um, departments as far as the FBI, uh, even DCI, of how they're compiling those reports. Now... uh, a big issue that I ran into in a few of our meetings was the coroner reports. I have to keep going back to that because a lot of them were just, some of them weren't filled out all the way accurately. And unfortunately, when I when I came across this, I was really nervous to know that is this information I would learn to hold on to or is it information I can divulge? And who can I divulge it to? Who can I share it with without saying you're not doing your job? But, in, you know, the moral of the story is is accountability. And at the end of the day, when 
those different areas had failed those families and those families knew what happened mm-hmm. that's where that's where the division is created you know and and unfortunately the victims and the families are the ones that suffer at the end of the day because the ones behind the badge get to go on you know they mm-hmm. get to go on and continue with their job position yes. they go on and move forward and on to the next case yeah. and so a lot of it when they have an overload of cases or they're behind on paperwork or they're trying to figure out how to even process it with staffing that's available yes. um again that 1.5 million from the trump administration i mean that's like you said a drop in the bucket it's minimal that's why i say that's that's nothing compared to the field work and the footwork that needs to be done because the cases that need to be revealed it's full-time operation i mean you think of the show 48 hours yeah it's 48 hours some of these investigators are going full-time and saying we've got to get down to this because the longer you wait the more the evidence is compromised the more uh, information is lost or even maybe the people that are uh, involved with these cases are long gone and so that's that's what the issue is that i've uh, come across in my research and really relaying it back to the different departments and saying this is what we see and this is what our community sees and this is how our community is impacted and i'm able with my access to sit down at the round table with them in great uh, coordination efforts and say how can we do better and how can we fix this and how can we create more efficient reportings um, based on servicing the families better because when I sit down in my experience to do these interviews with the families and it just breaks my heart to know that the the trauma the turmoil and the loss that they deal with because they want answers and those answers can only come from those who hold the authority and hold the power in making those decisions. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, again, bringing that up, it's it's always the families, unfortunately, that are going out and finding this out. I mean, and, and then reporting it back to the leaders in our community, reporting it back to the different advocacy groups and saying, what do I do with this information? Or how do we... How do we utilize this and how can we find justice? Because it's about the justice for these families too at the end of the day. And I would hope to see in the future with these efforts that we're putting forth on these different task force that have been created, that that's being a priority and utilizing my voice uh, and my experience of policymaking to say, these have to be the efforts that we're putting forward. These are the areas we have to address in my areas of concern of how we are initiating our um, professional experience or investigative experience of how we need to better our, our uh, investigative reports. So. And you know how that affects the families in terms of our extended families? Something happens to one of us and the whole family feels it. You know, mm-hmm. the uncles and aunts and nephews and everybody. So it, I'm, I appreciate your efforts to sit on these task force and to bring that message across. Yep. Because, you know, in our tribal communities, we're very close-knit. And uh, like I said, somebody pinches your nephew you feel it or something yeah it's a ripple effect you throw a rock you know it's like a ripple effect and we're so interconnected that it's uh different from other cultures you know 
Yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, I, I couldn't agree anymore with you as far as having that extended family. Mm -hmm. Because it's like once you go into like uh, even like uh, our traditional values or ceremony efforts that we uh, all p play a part in mm -hmm. in our you know lives, that's something we come across is uh, creating that uh, extended family and saying, you know, when you guys go through something so uh, detrimental or, or maybe even so uh, victorious, you guys create a connection amongst each other, whether you're blood or not. Sure. And that's how those families um, grow, you know, and we become family because we feel each other's pain and we can really relate with one another sure. because that's what we do is we communicate, you know, and that's that's something that we're trying to express to these different departments and different uh, jurisdictional areas to say, if we can communicate, why can't you? And Or if you are, how can we be better at it to understand what process processes need to be uh, done or what policies need to take place to make sure that the efficiency and the consistency on these reportings are done accurately. Sure. And that's what we want to make sure happens. And to bring some kind of closure. And it may not be, you know, something that we carry that's hurtful. Carry, we carry all of our lives. But then our extended family is a great strength also for us. You know. Absolutely, and I agree. I mean, that's that's our support system. You know, mm -hmm. that's our rock at the end of the day. And just to get to know the um, individuals that I've come across in my research and mm -hmm. my different uh, advocacy efforts, I mean, like Lynette Grable, you know, coming in and meeting her as a speaker and really associating with her. I mean, we've become close, you know, and, yes. and I know on a drive that we uh, were taking when we were out on business and <laughs> we were doing our candidate forums, um, she, I, it really meant a lot to me when she reached over and she's like, you know, you're like a sister to me. And so to know that the extension there from her, to know that even though we're not blood, um, she could really feel what I felt, you know, and that sure. that's what made our connection like pure and it made it made it solid, you know. So again, absolutely, that's something that we really look back to or lean back on, especially in traumatic cases or traumatic scenarios such as domestic violence or just violence in general that we endure on the reservation. And unfortunately, these statistics are really held over our heads as natives or Native American women, where we need that. We yeah. need that rock, and we need each other. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, wow. There's so much to be covered surrounding this topic. And, you know, we're coming to the end here, but is there anything that you would like to mention or bring up that we haven't touched on yet? Um, yeah, actually, um, I would like to bring up, everybody says, you know, Latera, how can we help? How mm. can we get involved? Mm -hmm. How can we uh, bring the awareness with, you know, with y'all and what your efforts are? Because a lot of our movements that we uh, utilize are going to be our social gatherings, mm. are going to be our justice marches that we take place, or, you know, take upon ourselves. And um, I think the... Uh, community database base like it starts with us uh, as we're building to raise awareness and fill in the gaps that law enforcement agencies uh, create the uh, one of the um, efforts that I'd like to really talk about is the color red and the red dress movement mm -hmm. um, that has been adopted as a symbol in this movement it's uh, traditionally a color that is associated with spirits in many indigenous cultures and so the red dress movement and the hashtag MMIW campaign it included uh, different individual groups and events that uh, got involved with it 
And so that's been a national um, idea as far as how individuals can bring awareness about and to utilize um, what you're good at. I think uh, with art, music, mm. uh, being able to express yourself, like uh, myself, I, I'm good at using my voice. So being able to uh, use my voice and to create awareness and education on that, um, uh, this uh, topic is something that um, I kind of take upon myself. And those who are into art, those who are into uh, music, definitely utilize that as bringing awareness, you know, using mm. your voice, your creativity and that. Um, I know like a woman named Martika Growing Thunder in Washington, uh, she used her native artwork and uh, ribbon skirt making abilities to raise awareness about the high mm. rates of the missing and murdered indigenous communities. And two of her aunts were murdered. And one of them uh, was in a domestic violence incident, and her grandfather's sister was killed, and she was a police officer. So um, another one, um, I guess, if you feel uh, compelled to help fight against a serious problem of missing and murdered indigenous women across the United States, and I'm going to throw Canada out there because I think that's mm. something else we didn't get to mention was mm, the true. origination of this movement was from Canada. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of what the United States has done with uh, Abigail Akahawk was to be uh, able to adopt those measures into the nation with the Urban Indian Health Institute um, and, you know, research that she's really done quite the, made quite the effort on. And a lot of our research is coming from that and stemming from her initiatives and her um, colleagues that she really brought out uh, to light with that to help us and give us direction as advocates and what we need to do. Um, and I think the other one was just um, education of others. And again, that's to help to bring the awareness about. Uh, it's just uh, far too long the problem of violence and kidnapping, human trafficking, modern slavery, and murder in the Native communities. It's been swept under the rug and ignored or dismissed due to uh, long-held racist and pre you know, prejudice attitudes. So I guess to learn the approachment of, or learn to approach, or appreciate the hashtags and get involved in spreading the word on social media. Uh, take part in local national events that stand for the right of women and attempt to raise money to serve them. There's a lot of uh, uh, initiatives out there where you can actually donate towards these uh, programs and different advocacy agencies that need it. Um, and a big one that I always say, stamp out the uh, prejudice whenever you see it. Uh, that's another uh, a big statement that we really utilize. And um, consider more hands-on uh, help by volunteering your time or resources directly to organizations, groups, or individuals affected by this serious problem. So in conclusion, in many ways, you can help promote justice for Native women and help stem the tide of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, by, identifying, by identifying who's making the biggest difference and supporting them. Uh, so I guess also on the MMO, oh, I almost forgot before we close out. Uh, on the MMIW under um, how awareness is being raised, um, I also want to mention the Somebody's Daughter uh, documentary. Mm. And I don't know if you guys heard of that yet or seen it on social media. I know um, my colleague Lynette Grable uh, was really uh, bringing awareness to that. And I know uh, one of my uh, colleagues that I work with from Montana, from the Indigenous Global uh, Council, uh, was one of the ones who made that initiative uh, with that. So... Um, it's it was the most effective awareness raiser out there, and it moved senators uh, such as uh, Tester up in Montana that was mentioned. Yes. 
Yeah, and um, it helped to move Savannah's act from uh, committee to the Senate floor for a vote on that uh, somebody's daughter. So they're uh, both in the film um, as far as the documentary that's going to be released, and we're still in the editing process of uh, releasing that. So, uh, I mean, there's a million things I could say about it, and as well as the billboard initiative that's gone mm. up about that. And so I'd really like to point that towards the uh, the founders of that, you know, of the Indigenous Global Council that really helped with that. So, again, just getting out there and being active mm. in your community, utilizing your voice and stepping up, because it could be a divisive topic at the end of the day. And it's justice for the families and justice for the victims. Mm-hmm. And we was going to pursue premiering somebody's daughter at the end of March here at the college, but the pandemic came along. So I think we'll continue to work with the organization to try to get a premiere somewhere, you know, and, and bring more awareness. And um, I guess I, I, I would just like to um, end my thoughts here today and thank you for being involved, you Lynette, on this uh, very sensitive issue, you know, and um, my thoughts and prayers and... Uh, burn cedar for those families that are still going through some type of closure or hurt in our communities because what may have happened to a loved one. So, who we who. Right, ha-ho. Thank you yeah. for having me. I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, ha-ho. I'd like to say ha-ho to Lynette as well. I appreciate both of you for coming on, and thank you both for the work you've been doing. We also want to say thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Indian Relay. And I want to invite you to subscribe to our show's You can find us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google, and the 10Cast Network. And if you go to the IndianRelayPodcast.com, you can also find our previous episodes there, and you can also find the links to wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Um, I want to invite you to go follow us on Facebook and on Instagram. You can find more behind-the-scenes footage, behind-the-scenes content there as well. I want to say thank you to County 10 for being the backbone of this project. I want to say thank you to Porters here in Riverton, Wyoming for providing the studio and the equipment which we are currently using to record. And I also want to say thank you to our sponsors, the Wyoming Department of Transportation and the Central Wyoming College Institute of Tribal Learning. A huge thank you to all of our supporters. And with that, I will say wahe and ha-ho. This is Cody Beers with the Wyoming Department of Transportation. YDOT is proud to help bring you the Indian Relay podcast and to partner with the Eastern Shoshone and Northern Arapaho tribes. Our goal is to help keep people safe on our local highways. Did you know that seatbelts are the single most effective traffic safety device for preventing death and injury? Simply wearing your seatbelt in a car reduces your risk of death in an accident by up to 45% and by 60% in a pickup truck. Let's celebrate life. Buckle up for life.